Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're uh, in the second week of our study of the letter to Philemon. Uh, For those who couldn't join last week or otherwise just need a refresher, Paul is the author here. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's writing the only one-to-one personal letter that we have uh, of his in Scripture to a man named Philemon, who is a wealthy man who hosts uh, the church in his home in either Colossae or Laodicea. We can ask Max where Philemon is. I can't quite figure that out. But in one of those two cities, they're right next to each other. And Paul is asking Philemon to take back his runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from his master Philemon all the way to Rome. Likely he stole money or possessions of some kind. And somehow he comes into contact with Paul in the city of Rome. And what does Paul do better than anybody? Shares the faith of Jesus Christ with people, right? And he does that with Onesimus. And Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus and his life is changed. So instead of Paul writing to Philemon and appealing to Roman law or general kindness, Paul appeals on the basis of primary identity in Christ that all three of these men share together. And Paul encourages Philemon to take Onesimus back, not as a slave anymore, but as a beloved brother. And history would indicate that this indeed did take place. There was a reconciliation. I think it's one of the greatest stories of transformation that our church has over 2,000 years. And last week I spoke about how our primary identity in Christ transforms our relationships, so much so that a runaway slave can become a brother to a former master. And this week I want to talk about another theme, an important theme, a no less important theme, and that is the theme of freedom, which is prominent as we study this letter to Philemon. So our scripture this morning is five simple verses from Philemon. Uh, You can grab your pew Bible if you want to, to follow along. I believe the page is 970, or if you brought your own Bible, this would be a great one to just keep that page open. Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning, verses one through three and eight and nine. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then skipping to verse 8. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I want to ask two questions this morning. They sound simple. They're not. To guide us in this theme of freedom in Philemon, and they are this. Why does Paul call himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ? When Jesus, when we look at his life, is so clearly in favor of people's freedom, flourishing, and liberation. Why does Paul choose that, prisoner of Christ? And then, why doesn't Paul advocate for the abolition of slavery in his letter to Philemon and elsewhere? The answers to these questions are going to be helpful for us 
as we navigate the realities of freedom in our day and age today, and particularly as we seek to follow Christ. So the first question, why does Paul call himself a prisoner of Christ? Um, Paul always begins his letters with this kind of salutation, right? Identifying himself, identifying the recipient, greeting them. In the majority of Paul's letters, he identifies himself as Paul the Apostle of Christ. Apostle is one who is sent, one who has a consecrated ministry. Uh, I think it also means one who has seen the risen Jesus. So Paul uses that frequently to communicate his credentials to his recipients. It also sort of adds some gravity to the words that he's about to say, right? Like, I'm an apostle of Jesus, you better listen. But here is this personal letter between these two friends. We believe that Paul brought Philemon to Christ. And he doesn't appeal to authority or apostolic status, but he calls himself a prisoner. Uh, He is indeed a prisoner, a man in chains, when he writes this letter, but he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Caesar, but rather a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He notes it again in verse 9, saying that he's both, at the same time, an ambassador and a prisoner. Think about that. That's a hard thing to do, right? How can you be an ambassador and in chains? Elsewhere, in books like Romans and Titus, he takes it a step further and he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't that seem a bit odd? I mean, Jesus' own teaching, which Paul was wholly devoted to, is so centered on freedom from chains of many kinds and liberation from oppression. And that's so central to Jesus' own good news and his gospel. And here, Paul himself is calling himself a prisoner and elsewhere a slave. And he's doing so in a manner that conveys that he's proud of these designations. He likes being called this. So I think we can start this morning by agreeing that Paul's definitions of freedom and slavery are vastly different than those of our Western world today. Freedom's a huge theme. We've talked about it in our families and here as church and in many different ways. Freedom is always sort of forefront in our minds as Americans, right? As Western people. And we're, we're tempted to think that how we experience freedom is sort of a fairly new concept. Maybe we trace it from post-war modernism and technological advances and the, and the growth of Hollywood, westward expansion. If think of like Jack Kerouac's um, book on the road, right? The mentality of the late sixties of this open road, no associations, just go. And then you think of the, the sixties and and Woodstock and the sexual revolution through free market Reaganomics in the eighties, the, the fall of communist tyrannies and anti-establishment movements in the 90s. And then in this century, how do we see freedom lived out? It's the ongoing push of human rights, of the moral mandate to throw off our oppressors, the call for bodily autonomy, the radical redefinition of sex and marriage and gender that's happened in my lifetime. And in the all-too-present conversations that, that we've had in the last couple of years everywhere about masks and mandates and government overreach and the right to define truth however we see fit based on the news source that we go to. But this kind of freedom that we sort of experience, it might feel sort of new or fresh to us. It's not new. Constitutional professor Patrick Deneen, um, who's at Notre Dame, makes the point that our trouble with freedom hasn't been growing since the 1960s. It's been growing since the 1760s and the Enlightenment and our founding fathers and the U.S. Constitution. If you look back on it, it's really no wonder that we talk about freedom so much because the founding of our nation was based on a really radical new definition of freedom, which is essentially the ability to do what we want, to be autonomous, 
and to be protected in doing so. Now, let me be clear this morning, if your radar's already going up, our liberties in the U.S. are wonderful, oftentimes, and they're a gift. Ask anyone who comes from a truly oppressive country or government, and they will say the same. But I want to say that full autonomy in the way that we live into it is dangerous, too. Say what you will about the Christian principles that our nation was built on, but the view of freedom is as free to do whatever I want and to find truth as I see fit. That's not the same as biblical freedom. Yet, we've been sort of stewing in this this unbiblical, maybe confusing view of freedom for almost a quarter of a millennium, and it's kind of everywhere. It's in the air we breathe, and it's grown mostly unchecked throughout our history to the point where, in 1992... Supreme Court Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter in the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey said this as a majority opinion. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Friends, in the church here today, I don't even know how to begin to tell you how dangerous a quote like this is. Because it projects a worldview that we are all so susceptible to. No moral absolutes, no governing truth, no ultimate meaning in our life other than our own sense of personal happiness. No constraints. Buy what you want, sleep with who you want, eat and drink what you want when you want, choose your own lifestyle, do what feels right, follow your desires, and if something is constraining you, it is bad. You don't have to question it, it's just bad. It needs to be overthrown. I was thinking about this last week as uh, our family had the opportunity of celebrating the life of Katie's grandma, Carolyn. Look at that sweet lady. Isn't she sweet? Um, Carolyn was a great lady. She was usually sweet. She was always spunky, and she was worth celebrating. We gathered in Rockford last week to celebrate her 95 and a half years on this earth. And in many ways, if you, if you run back her life, she is like the poster child of, of post-war Americana. Got married young moved to the city, Rockford, the city, but for her it was a city. She bought the family home with the white picket fence, stayed at home with three kids while her husband worked in a factory, financial stability, some travel, lots of grandkids, great-grandkids, long retirement, the whole nine yards. And here's some numbers that stuck out to me as we were celebrating her life last week. 95 and a half years on earth, that's amazing. All of them essentially in the Christian faith. 68 and a half years of faithful marriage to one man. Amazing. 76 years in one church. Anybody have that beat here? Maybe some people in our first service. 76 years in one church. First Free Church of Rockford. 76 years. These are mind-boggling numbers to me. And they speak to this super faithful life that's worth celebrating. But I was also struck by something as we're walking through these numbers, because I'm thinking about freedom, the sermon that I'm going to be preaching the next weekend. And maybe some of you are already thinking about this as I read off those numbers. Our culture today looks at those numbers, and they see them as like stifling, right? Even oppressive. You only had one partner for 68 years? You didn't build a career? You relied on a man to provide for you? You never moved away, really? You never went church shopping when things got hard at your church, and there were things that were hard at your church. She told me about them. You spent your life living under a sacred text like the Bible, this 2,000-year-old text, instead of your own desires. See, our culture today would look at her world as a captive one, not an emancipated one. 
But the Bible, as it defines freedom, would actually tell us that this woman was free in those constraints, within that fidelity. Because we see that the, the dominant Western view of freedom is freedom from constraints and conventions and oppression and anything other than your happiness. But the biblical view of freedom is freedom not from something, but freedom to something. Freedom to the good. For Paul and for Jesus, and most of the great leaders of the Christian church, freedom is not about autonomy from authority, but freedom to choose an authority outside ourselves that can liberate us from our desires for self-gratification and self-fulfillment because we know that as humans, we can't handle that kind of autonomy. We're too sinful. We're too selfish. We're, we're not made to be our own solar systems that God orbits around us. We are meant to orbit around something far greater than ourselves. And we all want freedom. But I think we can probably all agree as we look around at our culture today that the American view of freedom and autonomy is failing us. We have incredible freedoms, no more so than what's in most of our pockets right now. I just felt a notification, right? We could spend our fortunes, right? We could pull our phones out right now and spend our fortunes on something and have it delivered to our door tomorrow. We can curate our personal images. We can hop on a plane and mostly go anywhere that we want to go. We can open Tinder and we can swipe until we find someone we like and then when we don't like them anymore, we can discredit them and discard them. We can eat fruits and vegetables that are out of season and never even think about it. We can leave our church and find one with a pastor that will do sermons that are more agreeable than the one that I'm preaching right now, maybe. We're offered so much freedom, and it's killing us, and not too slowly. As I noted last week, anxiety and depression are at levels that are, have never been seen before. Self-harm is skyrocketing. Addiction is endemic. And there are younger generations, some of you who are here, who all they've ever known in their life is, is the age of the smartphone. And you're less equipped than any other generation to navigate these freedoms. Because when it's only freedom from something, it's crippling. It's crippling. In fact, it's not freedom at all. It's captivity. And, and to the young people here, I'm so thrilled to have so many uh, high school, junior high young people here. I want you to hear this really clearly. Much of what the world sells you as freedom Jesus calls slavery and vice versa. Talk to a recovered alcoholic or an addict and ask them about the, their freedoms that they had to drink or to use, and they will tell you to a person that what they experienced actually was a prison and that their life of sobriety now, though it is full of like daily constraints, right, is far more free. As the great pastor of our time, Tim Keller, said, real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. In many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. So instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it? Carolyn lived with a lot of constraints. Think about marriage vows. Are marriage vows constraining marriage folks? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. They're remarkably confining. She was constrained by raising three children. She was constrained by pastors in her church telling her uh, what's important and how to live life. She was constrained by the Bible as she tried to live it. And guess what? You'll never be able to convince me 
that she was not a truly free person because she found the right constraints, the liberating restrictions, and she lived according to them. So when Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ, he's declaring that I found the right restrictions. (laughs) I found the right constraints, the restrictions that meant that he couldn't do a lot of things because he was shackled to Jesus instead. The 16th century metaphysical poet John Donne puts it better than any modern writer in his poem entitled Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. When he writes this prayer at the end of this poem, he says, Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Jesus and Paul, don't forget, they were descendants of slaves, so the imagery is not employed lightly. But Paul is clearly stating in Philemon that if I'm not a slave to Jesus Christ, then I am enslaved to my worldly freedoms. If I'm not a prisoner of Christ, if he doesn't enthrall me, if he doesn't ravage my life, then I'm never going to be free and I'm never going to be pure. So, Paul instead takes off the shackles of autonomy through the grace of Jesus Christ that have imprisoned him, and he places those, gives them over to Jesus and said, would you reattach these to you? The one from whom I can receive true freedom. Yes, Jesus himself came for freedom, but not freedom from authority, not for our own personal autonomy, but rather freedom from sin and selfishness and freedom to choose the authority of Jesus, and find life. So that's the first question. Second one, and it's a tough one. Why doesn't Paul advocate for the abolition of slavery in his letter to Philemon? Why doesn't he say to Philemon, you shouldn't be doing this? I mean, obviously the background of this this passage, this, this short letter and, and our conversation on freedom in Christ, it's set against slavery, right? The slavery system back then, in particular the master-slave relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. As I said last week, it's important for you to hear it. We need to understand that slavery meant something very different in the first century than it does in sort of our American collective identity. Uh, this is not the horror of, of racially motivated chattel slavery. But instead, most of the slaves in the Roman world were either spoils of war or they sold themselves into slavery so that they could escape a cycle of poverty. So they were often well-educated. They had freedoms. They were treated well, often by their masters. Uh, They could marry. They could accumulate wealth. They could run a business. They could purchase their own freedom. And as much as two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves at the time of Jesus, according to some. So it wasn't necessarily a designation of derision. It It was just kind of a part of Roman life, right? But it's important for you also to know, in case you were wondering, the Bible is explicitly against slavery in all its forms. <clears throat> From the Exodus through the New Testament, Scripture teaches that uh, despite some very feeble and, and uh, empty attempts by some to justify slavery, that racial discrimination, dehumanization, abusive hierarchy, and, and oppression is wrong, full stop. There's not a lot of wiggle room here in the Bible to even talk about this. But then, why does Paul not just dismantle it? Why doesn't he rebuke Philemon for even having slaves in the first place? 
Why, doesn't he say, why does he say in his companion letter of Colossians, a really tough text, where he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourself into it as is done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance for, as your reward, because you serve the Lord Christ. Doesn't that sound to you like taking the side of the oppressor? Isn't that kind of troubling? And again, I speak to the young people that are here, and man, I'm, I'm so glad you're here today, because you are the ones, as I look at your generation, that are so drawn towards justice and towards societal and social justice, to, to the dismantling of oppressive systems and, and replacing those with liberty and justice. What a gift. We need your heart for justice in the church. You need to teach someone like me what that means. But it's also so vitally important for you to see what Paul is doing here. Paul does not start a protest. He doesn't start a petition. He doesn't rally a bunch of people to shame Philemon. He instead appeals to love. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And what's the appeal? Do your part in receiving this runaway slave as a brother and ultimately freeing him of his bonds. Likewise, Paul does not tell the slaves in Colossians to rise up against their oppressors, but rather to obey them and to honor them and to work hard for them. Why does he do this? Well, because these were probably Christian slaves that he's writing to. As as many as two-thirds of this house church may have been slaves. But they're believing slaves, and they probably had unbelieving masters, many of them. So Paul is saying, by your hard work and your obedience, be a witness. Be a witness to your masters. This hard, faithful, obedient work isn't done for them, but it's done for your master Jesus because even a slave has the freedom to choose who they are enslaved to. If you're enslaved to Jesus, you work for him regardless of your earthly chains. But it's worth asking, is this what Jesus would have written if, if, if Jesus was tasked to write to Philemon? Is this what he would have said? If he was tasked to write to the letter in Colossae, is this what he would have said? Jesus, the liberator, the breaker of oppression. Would he have really told slaves essentially like, be good slaves for me? And would he have essentially told masters, which Paul essentially did, you can keep slaves, but you need to treat them well. Does that sound like Jesus' words to you? Well, there is a story very early in Jesus' ministry where he gets up on the Sabbath day to preach in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And he picks out a scroll from, the, from Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim that you're the Lord's favor. And then Luke amazingly tells us that he rolled up the scroll and said, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amazing. But the people were angry. They wanted to kill him. It says they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because as he's saying this scripture is fulfilled, they're going, Rome's still here. Our oppressor is still here. The inauguration of Jesus did not dismantle every evil and oppression and bring about social justice and world peace. There were still slaves. There were still prisoners. There were still poor. There were the blind and the lame. They were still there. How could he claim that scripture being fulfilled in their hearing? 
But here's where it comes together. Jesus gives us freedom to before he gives us freedom from. Jesus knows the human condition. He's fully human. He knows it. He knows that if he throws off every Roman oppressor and lifts everybody out of poverty and heals every infirmity, that the people would experience an earthly freedom. It'd be wonderful. But he also knows that once we're freed from something, we're going to find something else to be enslaved to because we do not handle freedom very well. If not Rome, then they were going to be oppressed by their liberties and their comforts and their addictions and their selfishness. But instead, Jesus' work of liberation is always subversive. It's mustard seed work that gets planted in the ground. And it seems insignificant, but it is not insignificant to God. So Jesus comes and he declares freedom to people, freedom to choose him. Paul doesn't try and dismantle this system by actually tearing down the system. Instead, he says this. Think of the brilliance of this. If I can get my friend Philemon, who I share Christian faith with as a primary, primary identity in Christ, if I can get him on the basis of love to bind himself as a prisoner of Christ, as I have done, then he's going to be reconciled with this runaway slave, and they're going to become brothers, and the church is going to watch this happen as it's read among them, and he's going to release Onesimus on his own, and then other people are going to see his obedience, and that story's going to be compelling for them, and, and, and they're going to see that this is a person who is captive to Jesus, and maybe they're going to release slaves too, and others will too, and guess what? That small thing, that small appeal on the basis of love is going to do exactly what Jesus came to do, which is to bring freedom to the captive in exactly the way that Jesus did, through small acts of changed hearts, freedom to before freedom from. That's how Paul dismantles oppression. So friends, I have two charges for us as I close this morning. And I promise you that these are as much or more for me than any of you. First, we have to examine how our concepts of freedom have poisoned our minds and our hearts and repent of it. Let me be clear. Toxic freedom is a bipartisan issue. The left and the right have gone astray equally in this and have imprisoned themselves to ideologies that promise freedom and deliver bondage. We need to replace these faulty views of freedom with Jesus' view of freedom, which looks a whole lot more like holy constraints than unholy freedoms. And then second, we need to commit ourselves to the freedom of Christ in other people's lives, just as Jesus did, and always on the basis of love. I'm going to dig into Paul's rhetorical tactics next week when we talk about models of accountability that Philemon gives to us. But if we want to live in a a more free and just world, which I think every single one of us do, we cannot do so without finding freedom in Christ first. When hearts are imprisoned by Jesus, they are truly free. And that's when freedom and oppression can actually be broken down in our world. We must lovingly encourage people to to become prisoners of the Lord because that's the construct in which slaves can become brothers and the poor can eat richly at our tables and the blind can see and the captive can go free. We must have burning hearts for justice 
but the justice must begin with our own broken and sinful hearts. Jesus must do his, his subversive mustard seed work there first, or else we are hopelessly enslaved to our freedoms. The Gospel of Matthew actually takes pains to point Jesus out as the new Moses who leads us in an exodus from slavery by freeing us and rescuing us from the prison of sin and self and leading us to the promised land of new life. We must model that. We must model that and call people to it in love. So, as Paul, the prisoner of Christ, did, and eventually as Philemon did, I invite you to embrace the constraints that Jesus places upon you. They are holy and they are good. You will never, ever be truly free without those constraints. And let those constraints, let those chains do their maturing work in your life as they gloriously strip you of your false freedoms and forge you into a person of love. The source of freedom is Jesus himself, who said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but you will know the truth as my true disciples and what the truth shall set you Lord Jesus, may it be so for us today as your people. Would you strip us, Lord, of our own concepts of freedom that are not from you? Would you give us the courage, Lord, to recognize the ways in which we have become enslaved to patterns of sin and selfishness? the ways in which we have made it our goal to throw away anything that might constrain us. And instead, would you give us a new vision of what it means to bind ourselves to you and to receive freedom and to receive life. Lord, I, I recognize there may even be people here today for, for whom this concept of being a prisoner of Jesus is a totally new idea. Maybe those who feel a longing in their heart for freedom that can only come from you. Lord, this is the heart of your gospel. Receiving the freedom that you alone can give to us. So Lord, we confess our views of freedom that have nothing to do with you. Instead, would you give us a kingdom vision of the way in which your freedom works in us and in your world, and would you give us courage to follow it, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.